everybody, this podcast is brought to you by TriarchSystems.com. I run a Glock 17 Charlie from TriarchSystems.com. I have thousands of rounds, no issues whatsoever. It's got all the utility and function and also looks good as well. If you want to get a custom pistol, carbine, rifle, anything in between and accessories, make sure you check out the guys from Texas at TriarchSystems.com. Make sure you use Philcraft to check out. Hey guys, this podcast it's a podcast I did while on the road on my morning commute. It's a uh, it's a ride or a truck drive with Mike. Hey, I'm just talking about survival preparedness. Leading into the weekend, there's a whole bunch of considerations. Hopefully, you hear this on your afternoon commute and maybe can take away some uh, thoughts on preparedness and survival leading into this Saturday and Sunday. I hope you guys enjoy your weekend. At all times, use Mike to save 10% on PhilCraftSurvival.com. I hope you guys enjoy. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Phil Craft Survival. I am uh, Mike, your host, and today I'm driving into work on my commute into Phil Craft HQ. I wanted to communicate to you guys about some things to think about leading into the weekend and, you know, discuss preparedness and how kind of preparedness should fit into your life. You know, I know a lot of guys and gals um, are new to preparedness and it has a lot of negative stereotypes associated with the genre. I mean, when I grew up thinking about preparedness, anything aligned with the word prepper uh, was a word associated with some crazy dude or gal uh, in the middle of the desert in a mobile home, typically with like antennas coming off uh, their mobile home or their helmet. And, you know, there are a few extremes. I mean, even in listening to the Joe Rogan podcast, he uh, referred to uh, myself in the podcast is extreme peppers, but I, I think I think that redefining what modern survival means in your life could be eye opening and could be a, a a pretty fulfilling experience. And I you know I always say the saying that preparedness is freedom, and I truly believe that. Uh, something I was thinking about this morning when I woke up, and this happens in the shower typically. Um, usually. When we think about survival, it's associated with uh, bushcraft, right? Which is, you know, if you're if you're exercising bushcraft tactics in the woodline, in the worst case scenario, it truly is the worst case scenario, because that means, uh, you know, learning that and understanding that technical skill is is essential. I don't think it's a bad thing, but I think if you've gotten to that point where you're rubbing sticks together in the wood. Uh, potentially naked and afraid, you've hit the worst case scenario. And what I mean is pre-planning preparedness in your life uh, leading up to that potential catastrophe, you should have a whole bunch of other things that are primary and alternate plans ahead of rubbing those sticks together um, uh, in order to be successful, i.e. a lighter, hurricane matches, flint, magnesium rod, the list goes on. So, when I talk about preparedness, the way I thought about it this morning was, you know, all the combat operations that I've been on, we are prepare, propelling ourselves into worst case scenarios. I mean, on purpose. And, you know, when I was in the regular army, we do, for example, a presence patrol. So you might be in a war zone and you're walking around looking for bad guys or looking for suspicious activity. But in special operations, you might do a direct action raid that's pre-planned. So you're you're literally putting yourself and your teammates physically 
inside the worst case scenario, which could be a gunfight, uh, suicide vest, uh, a whole bunch of, of controlled chaos. And the reason I tell you that is because there, there is a correlation behind mission planning, rehearsals, pre-combat inspections, like all these things that special operations do in advance of an actual operation and the direct correlation um, of survival, of gr- great outcomes, or, or as we would annotate it, mission success. So you have to understand that when you're living your everyday life, if you don't prepare for certain things, uh, let's say your career field, if you don't prepare in advance and plan out in advance and then execute uh, in advance all the things that are going to make you successful or all the things leading up to what you would determine as success in a career field, then you're potentially setting yourself up for failure. And so why would you not take the same approach when it came to survival? Why would you not take the same approach for something that you potentially don't see or don't experience uh, in the worst case scenario? And so, you know, that's my mindset when I think about education, when I think about training, even when I think about, you know, offering specific equipment that, that could be available uh, on the market for uh, you and enabling your survival. So I always want to highlight that because I think it's important to kind of define modern survival and what it means to you. Something I was talking about with the guys yesterday at Philcraft HQ was how quickly that our society could spiral out of control. And, you know, I was thinking this is, you know, this is my weird mind thinking, but I was thinking, you know, how could, if everybody knows like SimCity, maybe it's out, maybe I'm dating myself, but uh, SimCity was a game where, you know, basically you had a, a, a three-dimensional play like on a board game and you would make all these moves to build, you know, infrastructure and buildings and parks and you would try to grow your city and grow your populace. And, and, and it's an algorithm, right, where your decisions determine a certain outcome, good or bad or indifferent. And you start to analyze what's the best tactic in developing a healthy society or, or a, a healthy, uh, uh, in this case, city. Well, what I was thinking about was how could you build uh, utter chaos like, what are the things that you would do in order to destroy infrastructure or um, destroy the growth of a society or impede the growth of a society? And I know that's, you know, that's that's uh, that's kind of a dark uh, perspective of it. But the reason I, I ask you to think that um, in this in this exercise is you, in order to be a very good and, you know, diligent and resilient good guy. You need to understand the bad guy's perspective. You need to understand, you know, it, it's called red selling, right? You need a red sell from the bad guy's perspective. It actually comes, there's a, you know, the precursor to SEAL Team 6 and special operations for the Navy specifically. Um, they did red sell, which was, uh, they used to do uh, these naval installation exercises where they would play bad guys. And Richard Marcinko would take his guys and they would go in and, and, uh, um, test the security and red cell still exists as a, as a uh, principle in testing and probing uh, our, our, our security in different levels, you know, cyber, physical, and the list goes on. So what I want you to think about 
is if you want to be a more resilient good guy, you have to think about the red cell perspective. And that could be a question. Um, that could be a course of action. Like, what would I do right now if there was a fire in my house that blocked my front door and I couldn't get out of my front door and I didn't have a back door? What would be my protocol? What if my kids were upstairs sleeping? What would be my protocol? Um, what would be my literal physical actions in order to save my kids or save my family? Um, what would happen right now if you were listening to this podcast and you got in a vehicle accident and looked down at your legs and your your crotch was soaked in blood, which may be an indication of a femoral bleed? Like, what would your literal actions be? And in asking yourself those questions, you you identify a lot of things that you need to do physically, um, in equipment and in training. You know, for example, the, the accident. Well, what would you do if your crotch was bleeding and you looked down and you had a femoral bleed and you looked up and you didn't have a tourniquet? Well, now I know I need a tourniquet within arm's reach. Uh, what would happen if your tourniquet was in your center console? But if you rolled, the center console opened up and then the tourniquet flew into the back of your vehicle and you couldn't access it because you were injured sitting in place. And so that would tell you, okay, you need to have one in arm's reach, but you don't know how to use a tourniquet. But that will also tell you that you need to train on a tourniquet. And so, you know, these solutions um, uh, to these problem sets are kind of what we do in survival and preparedness. That's what we did in the military, and that's what I'm doing with Phil Craft Survival. So we developed a, the modular visor panel that goes up on your visor to allow you to have um, access to a med kit and a tourniquet within arm's reach that is that is adhered to the visor where if you were in a, a rollover, it would still be there. And so these things, that, and that's why we offer the uh, like next week or the week after next on the 15th of May from 6 to 7.30 p.m., at 511 Tactical Store, I'll be teaching a Stop the Bleed course for free at the 511 store. You can sign up for it on Facebook uh, or through our channels. And so we're providing the education and the resources. But there's a lot of things in your life that you could do on your own, in your own home, at the dinner table, talking to your kids, talking to your wife, talking to your husband, uh, that you could flush out. So when I... When I think about red cell and leading itself into catastrophe, leading our country in catastrophe, it wouldn't be difficult to do. Uh, I'm sure by now you've heard of uh, the issue in Venezuela where, um, you know, you have two factions fighting against each, against each other. You have a government that's, that's defending itself, that's uh, advocating for uh, a certain political view. And then you have the people underneath uh, another person who's trying to fight against that government. It's commonplace, right? It happens. Uh, it's happened throughout history uh, and, and civilizations. Uh, even in not modern uh, civilizations, it's happened. Um, and it's just, a, it's just like a life cycle of societies until they figure it out. Well, when you, when you look at what's happening on TV... You see violence where the police are fighting the military or the military or are fighting the civilian population. And it's complete and utter chaos. Let's go through a five step process, which is, I think, the five steps that would lead us into the fifth step, which is anarchy and chaos. 
right? Step one. Step one is political or social discourse. Uh, it's already happened in modern times in our society, whereby you have a political or uh, socioeconomic perspective where the country is divided. I mean, politically, the country is absolutely divided. I mean, it's almost 50-50 how the country is divided. You have epicenters, uh, centralized um, governments in cities who are displaced from the rural counties. And, uh, and, and, and that varies in political and, and social, uh, I mean, virtues, values, policy. It, it varies in nature. When I, when I lived in Northern California, I lived in a place, a small town called Jackson, California, and I loved it. It was beautiful. It was right against, it was butted up right against the Sierra Nevadas. And I was right across the border about an hour to my office uh, in Zephyr Cove uh, in South Lake Tahoe. And if you've never been to South Lake Tahoe, you need to go because it's a beautiful place. Um, I used to love visiting the uh, dog park there. They had like a, a dog beach where you could bring your dog with other dogs and you could run it on the beach of uh, South Lake Tahoe. But what was what was eye opening to me was the difference in when I would be in San Francisco, like an hour and a half away from Jackson, where you would have complete political, social uh, views that even in the in, in the demographic of people, completely different ideologies than in Jackson, California, which was the same state, same region, only 100 uh, miles away. And so what you would experience is the sheriffs in those towns refused to uh, enforce the laws that the governor of California put on the books. And so an example of that would be uh, gun rights. You know, and, you know, California is the most strict state when it comes to gun laws, but also have, you know, it's not per capita, but they have the most murders and violent crime in the nation. Again, not per capita. But when you when you look at the two differences, you even have rural parts of California, especially uh, northern California, that are standing against the state governance and saying we want our own uh, state. We want to be separated from the rest of the state. And I think it's I think it's the state of Jackson is or the state of Jefferson is what they're calling it. But you see signs, they have militias um, and it's very divisive. So when we talk about discourse, discourse are kind of the, like the social issues that we're facing that remain political, remain peaceful until they're not, right? I mean, the crazy thing about the social construct of social media is the ability to disseminate and spread like wildfire, like wild viral, like wildfire that goes viral between an idea and the action of doing something about that idea. Black Lives Matter is a good example for, for uh, how quickly that stuff spreads. I don't know if you guys remember, but the Black Lives Matter movement started online. And then as it developed online, there was campaigns that were telling people to hit the streets. And so what you saw is you saw pockets of people taking to the streets in these cities protesting. And so it's not hard to understand how, you know, basically you have a mailbox in your hand and the delivery of the 
uh, messages to that mailbox works at the speed of the internet. And so you could open up your inbox or open up your app and have complete access at the speed of the internet uh, to all these things that are, that have become uh, uh, social uh, elements in discourse. So this began to spread and we get to step two. Step two is protest. Look, it is a right. It is a right for people uh, and an important right for people to peacefully protest. Now, what I started seeing, I mean, this has always been the case and always been the nature. Uh, I, I have a degree in crisis management and homeland security, for example, and and some of the things that we study, I think my my associate's degree with Troy University was in law enforcement. And and some of the things that you start to understand about um, how it works in protest, uh, where protests become peaceful to become a, a, a riot, is it only takes a few bad actors to ignite a firestorm. Because behavior uh, in a in a protest uh, is is very fluid. And so when the bad actors come out, they easily, easily shape the behavior of the masses. And so all it takes is a, is a few people to stand up. It's kind of like the, if you think about the, the Spartans or the Trojans or Game of Thrones, where one man stands up and he runs forward, even though he knows he potentially is going to sacrifice his life. It reinvigorates the, you know, the, the morality or the, or the uh, motivation of that crowd. And so it only takes a, bad, a couple bad protesters to, to reach chaos, but it usually starts as a protest. Now, I want you to think about Black Lives Matter because Black Lives Matter started with protest in inner cities where they masked and then they went out onto the streets and the highways. They blocked traffic and even blocking traffic is uh, is a peaceful protest. Right. Um, but then it starts to get fuzzy. Right. It starts. The line starts to get blurred. I was talking to Raul Martinez, one of our guys who's a former law enforcement officer about this. And when it comes to riot control. Right. You have to be ahead of predicting the violence that could potentially be enacted uh, from a peaceful protest turning into something more violent and deadly. So you have a mass of people. They start blocking traffic. And then you have a couple bad actors that come out of the woodwork. They start throwing rocks at police. They start breaking windows on businesses. And that's where the line is drawn. Because when you have a peaceful protest uh, and then you have crimes committed, then you get into step three, which is violent protest, which is uh, chaos, the initiation of uh, the execution of a idea in discourse to the execution of something uh, violent taking place. And so what I want you to understand is when people are acting out, there is there is little to no justification for allowing them to do so. But like we saw in Black Lives Matter, the media reported it, uh, CNN specifically, Don Lemon specifically, I remember this because I recorded the video of what he was saying and, and posted it all over social media. The media was saying, shouldn't we just let these people vent? Like it, it should be um, their right to display um, the way they feel 
uh, and act out on the way they feel any way they see fit. And that's where I draw the line. And I think civil society should draw the line. Remember, when you impede somebody's, when you impede and encroach on somebody's uh, rights, somebody else's ability to, you know, defend themselves, talk, uh, communicate, um, you are breaking the law. And, and so it's not okay for you to exercise your rights, but somehow uh, that gives you a loophole to destroy everybody else's rights or even impede somebody else's rights. I.e., um, when uh, Milo goes to Berkeley and he goes to speak and do so peacefully and then Antifa shows up or anarchists show up or the left shows up and then shuts them down. That's where we need to draw the line as a society because we're getting on a slippery slope. We're allowing people to break laws. We're allowing people to, dis- to destroy other people's businesses, livelihood, commit violent acts amongst others. So there has to be a line drawn. But in Black Lives Matter, for example, that line wasn't drawn. It was very gray. And so we allowed people to do a lot of bad things. Because we said, hey, what's the alternative? The alternative is we try to stop it. And then the police look bad or the government looks bad. And in my opinion, you look even worse as an institution defending people, innocent people, their businesses, their livelihood. And so that's when this the slope starts getting slippery and it could lead into utter chaos. Now, the next step. Uh, which is hand in hand with chaos, is the destruction of infrastructure. Remember, it is very easy for a extreme organization, and it doesn't have to start as a pre-planned uh, Antifa movement, for example. It could be a couple knuckleheads who are breaking into people's homes, breaking into people's businesses, throwing rocks, shooting at the police. It could be those bad actors who start to break down the fabric, the infrastructure of that particular city of our society. Let me give you the example. Let's say those guys who are bad actors start committing violent crimes against police and against other people. What you saw in places like Cleveland, uh, like Baltimore, the West Coast and L.A., is some of the agencies, some of the police departments made deliberate decisions to pull back. And to allow them to burn vehicles, businesses, uh, commit violent acts, because the alternative was you would have to combat them and stop it. So some organizations decided to, to fall back and allow them to do what they do. Now, remember, in the hasty, in the short term, they're destroying, they're destroying uh, infrastructure that doesn't have a long term impact on that society. I mean, they they. You know, in the inner city, they were destroying businesses that were inside their own communities that were um, small businesses that weren't corporations that were just like them. They were actually African-Americans. And so there was a big controversy with that. But anyways, imagine these same people decide to attack the infrastructure. So they go after police departments. They start burning buildings. They go after power plants. They start destroying um uh, you know, water purification uh, or water treatment plants, um, fire stations, um, 
all these things, even even a Walmart, even the local businesses will 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 uh, collapse the infrastructure of that particular place. And so what I'm telling you is. On a micro scale, right? Yeah, businesses, small businesses, vehicles, displaced people, violent crimes might not have an overall resounding impact um, in, in the surrounding area, but definitely has an impact in the inner city. But it doesn't take a lot of people or a lot of action for them to destroy infrastructure that affects everybody, especially if you have enough people to do so. So now you take a city like San Francisco, the San Francisco Bay Area, which has millions of people. L.A., they don't even know the numbers of the population of L.A. because it's so massive and it's so hard to get a census on how many people actually live there. I mean, take the homeless population where it's in the tens of thousands in California, where, you know, you take somebody who uh, uses a protest as an opportunity to steal to break into businesses, to burn them down. These people live amongst us. It's the same people who are opportunistic, who have an opportunity to steal, but they don't have the morality to not steal, where they don't have the integrity to not break into businesses, to peacefully protest and to stand for, for a virtue. Instead, they use it as an opportunity. So these people are lying in the shadows waiting for the opportunity. You know, I always refer to the the San Francisco uh, earthquake, which was a, a 7.0 and larger magnitude earthquake that hit San Francisco in the early 1900s. It, you know, 3000 human beings perished in a population in the inner inner city of San Francisco of about 400,000. 300,000 are estimated to have been displaced. But you know what? 500 people, 500 human beings were killed by deputized military organizations, including, I think it was the 22nd Infantry Division, and police officers, because people were rioting, people were stealing, people were were, uh, um, going into displaced areas and and literally robbing from their fellow man. And so uh, there were even people, reports of people going in and burning their houses, because nobody had earthquake insurance back then, but they had fire insurance. So they burn their own houses down. And so when you look at bad actors that, that exist amongst us, they are looking for an opportunity. Imagine you don't have money. You're living in poverty in the middle of an inner city. And there's an opportunity for you get, to get the one up, to get uh, you know, free whatever. Call it whatever you want. TVs. It could be food. It could be for the right reasons. But still. Imagine the chaos that would ensue. That's why we talk about natural disasters and how easily, how easily they would manifest themselves into man-made disasters. So what I want you to think about is uh, step five, leading in to chaos and anarchy and how quickly this could compound itself. Look, all it takes, you know, racism has, has always divided our country. And, and a lot of it, in a sense, um, doesn't, have to, doesn't have to deal with reality. It could be, I mean, look at Black Lives Matter, right? We, we thought there was a, look, there was messaging where they were talking about an epidemic of police officers brutalizing uh, African-Americans, 
beating them, killing them, shooting them unarmed. And there was a few cases that were brought forward, Trayvon Martin, et cetera, et cetera, where they were talking about these as the staple or as the means to argue their point. And you know what was uh, articulated um, by a lot of organizations, including the Chicago Police Department, who at the time had a chief of police who was African-American, who had a majority African-American and minority uh, staff of officers and deputies, who said that all of these shootings were justified police shootings. So what we took from face value from a, a social movement was that there was some epidemic. But the reality behind the facts was it was false. There wasn't an epidemic. And yet, are there bad actors in the police department? Absolutely. I think in every institution, you could identify bad actors, um, but I wouldn't consider it an institutional problem. I mean, in our past, yes, we've been tainted. Uh, we've been tainted with uh, institutions that were racist. Uh, but now, I mean, I mean, if you look at our society and the fabric of how far we've come, we are in a good position. We are doing very well as compared to the rest of the world. Look, I've been to Northern Africa. You want to talk about racism? Libyans in Northern Africa think Africans are slaves still. They still have slave type um, uh, 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 hierarchies in their society. I mean, when I was there, they would they would pick up um, they would pick up Bangladeshian. I, I, I don't know if that's how you say Bangladeshians, uh, but bang, people from Bangladesh that were there and just feed them and then use their, their labor and they would do eight to 10 hours and pe- give them a piece of bread and a bottle of water and, and look at them as literal slaves. They thought Africans were below them. And so if you look at racism, we are in a very good position as a society. And when it comes to, to social issue, issues, think about how much fire and how much uh, movement that one hashtag Black Lives Matter ignited across our country. So it, it's it's literally like one single thing that can go viral that can send our society spiraling into chaos. It would not take a lot. And, and those five steps are five easy steps that we've already seen. We've been on the cusp of uh, social chaos. Uh, I just want to remind you guys of that because I want you to think about going into going into preparedness and and uh, thinking about how it applies itself to your life. If you live in the inner city and you live in a highly populated area and you don't have a go bag and a plan to bug out to a rural area, you're wrong and you're setting yourself and your family up for failure. We have tons of podcasts on all of this. We communicated about uh, about specific topics, including go bags, including mobility, including survival. I just encourage you, uh, if you're into podcasts, if you're into if you're not into podcasts and you listen to this, go subscribe, go leave feedback and go archive and go back to the different episodes and apply them to your life. Look, some of them won't be applicable to you and I get it, but you could always learn something from a podcast. I'm a big proponent of podcasts. I listen to them all the time. I try to, in these uh, lull times uh, where there's not much going on, including commutes, including in the morning or the afternoon, even in the shower. I'll put on a podcast and just listen and maybe get a different perspective and something that I could add to my life. Hey, guys, if you're interested in uh, anything that Philcraft has going on, we have at Philcraft Survival, at Philcraft Mobility, at Philcraft Survival Fit. 
um, fieldcraftsurvival.com, fieldcraftmobility.com. We have tons of resources for training, for equipment. And if we don't, because we're not the subject matter experts at everything, we'll point you in the right direction. I appreciate it, guys, and I hope you guys have a good weekend. I appreciate listening to me on your commute or wherever you are. Until next time, stay alert, stay alive.